Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 53, Return Part 2, recorded on April 14th, 2023. Thank you for joining me today. And a big continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible new album and his last incredible album on uh, Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Chinese Cafe, and our outro is Black Coffee. Some corrections today. These are actually corrections about uh, the podcast. In episode 40, Control, I said that the character Dr. Robert Burke from the Lost Worlds 1997 movie identified the Procompsignathus Triassicus as a Compsignathus Triassicus, but over the Easter weekend, I put the Lost World on before bed, and Burke clearly identifies it as a Procompsignathus. The subtitles were on and everything, so I got it. It's definitively identified in the film as a Procompsignathus Triassicus, so I was entirely mistaken to believe that it was called something else without double-checking the source text, and that was my bad. Also, I think I called The Lost World a 1995 film in episode 40, which The Lost World is not. The novel came out in 1995, and the film came out in 1997. And here we are 13 episodes later, but I am not above going back and correcting myself. Maybe in the final episode I'll come back and say, this whole thing was a mistake. <laughs> uh... And way back in episode 30, I posited with my excellent guest Chris Creamer that the Toronto Maple Leafs were having an awful season, when in actuality, with the season ending today, they're going to finish in the top five teams in the whole league. So we overreacted to their slow start this season. But if you think we overreacted to the regular season, you just wait until the playoffs. All right, uh, in Dinosaur News, continuing to review some of the awesome and interesting data from last episode, I'm checking out How Triceratops Got Its Face, an update on the functional evolution of the Ceratopsian head, which was written by today's terrific guest, Dr. Ali Nabavizadeh. All right, uh, we're continuing on on the elements of the frill. Evolutionarily, the earliest diverging Ceratopsians only possessed very small skull expansions or frills. This feature only developed with any prominence as the Neoceratopsians evolved, or as the more derived versions evolved from the basal state. In examples like Laoceratops, Archaeoceratops, and Auroraceratops, the frill was, quote, composed of a caudolaterally extended squamosal alongside a caudally extended parietal medially, which created a median parietal bar. <laughs> so you can see that, you know, a big part of this section is really beyond my understanding of vocabulary, but it seems to describe how the frills Osteology takes shape and where musculature attached to the frills. And the frill starts small in early Neoceratopsians and then uh, takes greater form in Leptoceratopsids and Protoceratopsids and then becomes, quote, largest and by far the most diverse and elaborate across Ceratopsids. The centrosaurine frills tended to have shorter, relatively rounder, or squared off frills, and chasmosaurines tended to have longer, more triangular, or rectangular frills. And these shapes have been studied for their roles in either sexual dimorphism or in the, quote, sociosexual signaling in some capacity. But the general consensus is that the evidence is lacking to make any concrete assertions on what the frills exclusively were used for. Uh, the frills' role as a defensive structure has also been carefully studied, reviewing its use in intraspecific or anti-predatory combat. For anti-predator defense, the frill serves well to protect the neck from predatory theropods and the long, quote, epoxipitals around the frill, otherwise recognizable as like the spines and horns sticking out around the edge of a frill on like a, a Styracosaurus or Ceratopsids, also would have provided an extra measure of protection. And you can think of like an example of Styracosaurus that uh, really exemplifies these, these 
epoxipitals coming out of the frill. The frill of the Triceratops had features that provided support against, quote, external forces such as the horn, thrusts of another Triceratops, or the jaws of a predatory theropod. It could also have served as a form of threat display, as lowering one's beak to the ground would raise the frill almost like the, you know, think of like the hood of a cobra ish sort of thing uh quote especially in longer frilled chasmosaurines which could have bowed their head down to show its frill in its totality uh and the muscle attachments and the spherical ball and neck socket articulation between the skull and the neck would have uh, quote allowed freedom of rotational movements of the head both in feeding and combat beyond this uh, the, the frill we have the beak and the snout 2010 study of ceratopsid snouts found that the, quote, dorsoventrally deeper skull in centrosaurine showed more resistance to forces created by stronger bites than the comparatively less heightened skulls of chasmosaurines, implying that chasmosaurine skulls were generally weaker. These differences led uh, that the, the, the paper's author, Henderson, to suggest that these animals had variability in their foraging behavior across taxa. Ceratopsians and triceratops have a large snout and an enormous external narus. Uh, there appears to be an evolutionary trend from earlier forms featuring, quote, rounded up or cup-shaped predentaries, which are the beaky end of the bottom jaw, towards, quote, more triangular and pointed predentaries as they evolve. The snouts also trend from, quote, generally narrow in the earliest ceratopsians to growing, quote, in robusticity evolutionarily leading up to the ceratopsids. So protoceratopsids and leptoceratopsids show a, quote, notably robust and rounded mandible relative to their body size, which might have also been used for biting at predators in self-defense, as well as eating, obviously. Uh, And this is evidenced in the fossil record if you check out the the fighting dinosaurs fossil, where the protoceratops has the velociraptor's arm in its mouth. Uh, It's also believed that the shapes of the ceratopsian's beak indicate whether it was a, quote, generalist or specialized feeder. One study co-authored by awesome guest of the show, Jordan Mallon, suggests that the, quote, narrow snout of ceratopsids with their enlarged and sophisticated feeding systems made them more selective feeders of flowering plants and shrubs compared to the broader-snouted hadrosaurids and ankylosaurs. So it may have been eating something different than the other animals, its peers, uh, in the environment. Concluding remarks. In the concluding remarks, there are even more awesome details about ceratopsians that have been suggested. One suggests that measurements of the encephalization quotient of a ceratopsian says smaller animals like protoceratops may have used a higher encephalization quotient to develop a utility of greater sensory acuity and speed to evade predators, whereas large ceratopsids with larger cranial weaponry like triceratops may not have required a high encephalization quotient and acute sensitivity. Literature suggests that ceratopsians likely had a diverse feeding ecology between both coexisting ceratopsians as well as them and other herbivores. Quote, Cetacosaurids likely ate low-growing plants due to their small size, ranging from softer vegetation to tougher plant life, along with seeds and nuts. And, quote, early neoceratopsians, leptoceratopsids, and protoceratopsids also ate low-growing plant life less than one meter in height, with their powerful feeding apparatuses allowing them to eat a range of conifers, ferns, cycads, and angiosperms, among other types of plants. Their powerful and efficient feeding apparatuses, their mouths, were capable of processing wide-ranging diets consisting of the toughest woody brows of conifers and leaves, as well as cycads, ferns, horsetails, and angiosperms. The vasculature of the head is a key consideration, consideration for its function, concludes the paper. Quote, for instance, the small olfactory bulbs in Triceratops implicate relatively little dependence on a sense of smell, and the orientation of the lateral semicircular canal suggests that the head was held at 45 degrees when feeding. To me, that's really interesting, considering the nasal opening is absolutely massive. Uh, But their olfactory bulbs, however, are small. And the paper adds 
that as 3D visualization and CT imaging techniques improve, looking into the skull and seeing how all that stuff in there works can reveal more details about the cranial nerve, vasculature, inner ear morphology, eye morphology, and intraorbital soft tissues, uh, which could inform how these animals smelled, how they breathed, and perhaps this nasal cavity is so damn big so it could, could ingest massive gulps of oxygenated air instead of necessarily smelling, or maybe it's for just keeping that head cool, or who knows. But maybe they needed more air intake than they necessarily needed uh, olfactory information uh, when, they're, when they were living. Plus, all those details can give a greater overall idea of how the head developed and for what purposes. So in conclusion, quote, it has become clear that ceratopsians are unique in their ability to show just how far the vertebrate head can go in evolving countless adaptations in extravagant ways. All right. <laughs> all right. With the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Welcome. Well, uh, please welcome my special guest this episode. It's uh, Dr. Ali Nabavizide. He's a clinical assistant professor of biomedical sciences at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, and he specializes in anatomy, dinosaurs, elephants, and mastication. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm great. The pleasure is all on the side of the table. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Ali and I met when a terrible cyclone swept me up and also Ali's Kansas farmhouse and swirled it around and around before smashing it down on the wicked governor of the east whose old and withered body turned to dust. And it was then that we were introduced to the good governor of the north who gave, do you remember this? She gave us each a pair of oh, ruby yeah, shoes no, I'm, I'm coming back to, me. <laughs> to help traverse the long and expansive yellow brick road, but also gave us the good news that Sylvisaurus has been named the official state land fossil for Kansas. Yes! <laughs> And with that news, we were yes, off to, absolutely. to see the wizard. What does it mean to, to have the Sylvisaurus be the new land fossil for, for Kansas? Oh, it means a lot to me, actually. So when I, I, I started my journey into paleontology, my undergrad at University of Kansas, and Sylvisaurus was a big presence in my life. Like, I spent a lot of time with that specimen. A beautiful specimen covered in iron concretions, but um, it's got a really nice skull, and I spent hours just looking at it and just studying it. So um, I think it's a great move by Kansas to make it the, the state fossil, state dinosaur. Yeah, it totally deserves the title. It's cool. a great, great specimen, a great animal. So. Did you um, have anything to do with it, or is it just coincidence that you love the fossil so much and it gets to be the state fossil? Did you? Right, well, I had zero to nothing? do with it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean... I haven't, I haven't um, been to, I mean, I haven't been at the University of Kansas for since undergrad. Yeah. So uh, it was just a really nice surprise to hear it. Uh, yeah. So I, and I grew up in Kansas. So even, and that, that aspect of it also, it means a lot to me too, that an ornithischian and ankylosaur got to be the dinosaur, the state dinosaur. Mm -hmm. the state fossil. That's really cool. And so in particular, it's specifically identified as the land fossil. The official land yes, fossil the land because, fossil, and I had to double check, fossil. Kansas is famous for being part of the inland sea, or maybe it's not yes, the inland absolutely. sea, nonetheless. And uh, if you were to go walking around in the field, you might find a Tylosaurus skeletons. That's the sea fossil, is it? Yes, also an incredible creature. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is like, it's like 50 feet long. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a mosasaur. Tylosaurus is a mosasaur, which is related to living lizards today but it's like the biggest mm. version of a lizard and um they're, they're swimmers so um really enormous heads um lots of sharp teeth lots of palatal teeth mm -hmm. just really cool animals are they the ones that had the teeth that had like rows and rows going back uh 
I'm so they, they have the outer teeth and then they also have teeth on the inside like in their on their palate as well wow. so um yeah lots of teeth um kind of conical teeth okay um yeah <laughs> they were they were the top predators of their wherever they were i mean you know wherever they were um kind of smaller animals than itself but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah they were one of some of the top predators of the ocean for sure that's so cool and then uh, and then there's the air fossil as well, and a very famous, it looks like it uh, is the pteranodon, which everybody knows. It, yes. Uh, it's hard to get that one wrong. So um, Absolutely, pteranodon, okay. iconic pterosaur. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think all all three of them are incredibly fitting. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm, I'm especially attached to the Silvasaurus um, myself, but all three of them, um, land, sea, and air, perfect. <laughs> perfect representation of Kansas. Well, I can think of a lot of paleo art that depicts a Tylosaurus leaping out of the waves to oh, catch yeah. a pteranodon that is flying too close to the water. And it's always that moment just before it gets the bite in. But there's yet to be mm-hmm. paleo art that depicts also the Sylvisaurus in that scene as well. Where Absolutely. Just have it kind of like on the on the shore kind of watching as, or, as it comes in the, <laughs> in the background. Or vice versa, the Tylosaurus trying to go at the notice at the Sylvisaurus while a pteranodon's flying. <laughs> That's much kinder. I would have done the bloat. That's a good idea. I'm going to think about that. I would have turned to the bloat and float idea where the Sylvie Source yes, is just bobbing. Just like bobbing along. <laughs> Who would rather go for that? It's a lot more meat than a pteranodon. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, good. Well, uh, and um, none of them have been named Toto, have they? Like unofficially, the, the, the fossils. Just no, around no, the, the Kansas stereotype. Kansas must be so tired of, of the Wizard of Oz. Seems like a long oh. time. That... <laughs> What's interesting? It's it's my wife's favorite movie, so she's always talking about it too. And she's oh, not from Kansas. It's a very likable. So movie. I hear about it not only from people who talk about Kansas in front of me, but also at home. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, coincidentally, I uh, was referred to you uh, by name by another and uh, Kylosaur specialist who uh, who said that uh, you were renowned uh, as being a particularly strong Jurassic Park fan. And uh, and so in paleontological circles, you are shortlisted as one of those people who who have become especially <laughs> known for their fandom of Jurassic Park. Does that reputation precede you fairly? Uh, I would say so. Yeah, <laughs> I am a huge fan of Jurassic Park. It kind of uh, it really uh, defines my childhood in a way, um, as far as like my love for dinosaurs and animals and just reconstructing dinosaurs to life like mm-hmm. trying to figure out what they really would have looked like that was a big part of my entire um kind of journey into paleontology i would say mm-hmm. uh, and yeah i was six years old when i came to theater my dad took it took me to the theater and i was just gobsmacked i'd see the brachiosaurus walking on screen the triceratops those two scenes especially were like mm-hmm. my that like that was it for me <laughs> It really, it really hooked me, and so, and I'm not the only one of my age, kind of age group, in the dinosaur paleontology. I would say, um, even if some of some people don't want to admit it, they probably, it probably influenced them as well. Um, but no, I'm, I am absolutely a big fan of it. And movie came back, it came out back in 1993, you know, any kind of inaccuracies that people like to talk about all the time mm. and complain about, I actually always love talking about it. Like, cause I, I love talking about how our vision of the science of these animals has improved. 
over the years. Um, and, you know, there's always a the division between how, you know, Hollywood wants to portray things or animals and, or like dinosaurs and how science actually um, portrays them to be. But um, I think that dichotomy is actually what helps us as paleontologists. Um, I A lot of people would disagree with me in that, obviously. <laughs> but they would think it's just annoying. But for me, it's like, oh, no, you know, actually it did this. And this is why they did it this way in the movie or this is why, you know, so on and so forth. It gets, gets always for me, gets to be a really uh, great discussion. Mm -hmm. Whoever I'm talking to. Yeah, Jurassic Park definitely was a big part, <laughs> mm -hmm. big part of my life, uh, or as far as my childhood. And it was definitely my favorite movie, let's say. I feel like sometimes that in, in science, but also, especially it seems like in dinosaurs and often in paleo art, I suppose you could call mm -hmm. Jurassic Park paleo art in a way that they've depicted dinosaurs in a very special way, that yeah. when you do it, uh, there is always guesswork involved. And so there is always oh, yeah. going to be some sort of creative license which is taken and so those are the the, the sort of battlefields that people <laughs> want to draw their sabers on and it's it's interesting because uh when you make those choices it becomes a, a site of provocation and it's yes. uh in, then where people begin to i guess argue but in science it seems like that's where the research and the more research goes into you know proving or disproving or or challenging what do we know and how much can we know and i feel like we wouldn't have had the uh, the hot blooded debate quite as voraciously as uh, without somebody coming out and saying, "Hey, these things aren't like cold blooded Absolutely. lizards." I think that the the Tyrannosaurus scavenger hypothesis is one where I think everybody just presumed Tyrannosaurus was the penultimate uh, carnivorous mechanism out there, and and, uh, and so somebody had to say people think about it more. Yeah, for sure. well, let's prove it. Maybe there, you know, the evidence says he's got a. A lot of things in common with uh, terrific scavengers. Maybe it's uh, just a terrific scavenger, and so then everybody uh, raced to quash that idea. But <laughs> but it was interesting. Well, I, mean, I, think... I think that's the beauty of the, the of our field, really. Mm -hmm. Like there are a lot of fields where you know, just like absolute evidence is the only way to go, right? Mm -hmm. And like it's it's the only way to actually you know want to want to strive to prove something, and it ends up. Being, being kind of this competition of proving the other person wrong. Paleontology, I think, is a special science in which you know, all, you know you find as much evidence as you can, and based on all every single piece of evidence, what are the possibilities, mm -hmm. right? Like what what is possible, what is not, based on what we know, and that leads to a lot of different paleo art reconstructions, um, and begrudgingly, that also does. Um, lead to a lot of debates among paleontologists and paleo artists on how to reconstruct it. Like, oh, there's no evidence for that. But a lot, in a lot of cases, when they say that, there's always, always also not really evidence for the contrary <laughs> either. Right. It's just their idea of, oh, oh, well, you know, things that are living today look like this, so it's probably more that. Uh, but it's it's kind of up to the the person looking at it or up to the scientist, up to the artist or whatever to kind of decide like for themselves, like what makes the most sense for them. Mm -hmm. And that isn't, a, a, that isn't something that's like a hard science. Right. So I think paleontology does invite the arts as well to be, be a part of it. I think it's a special field in which we do the science as much as we can. And there's, it's, it's the reason we still have 
feeding studies a hundred years later. Like <laughs> these animals weren't changing. Like there's something in the studies that's changing. We, we know things differently than we did five years ago, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, 50 years ago. Like there's a lot, a lot of new, new techniques, but along with new techniques also comes caveats with those new techniques. Right. And things that, um, you have to say, well, you know, yes, it's, it's, it shows a big um, portion of the evidence here, but there's also these little pieces missing. Mm-hmm. Those pieces might be important, but if there's no way to show evidence at that point with the fossils that we have, that's where it gets into a little bit of speculation, um, and that's where the art comes in. And I just think that's beautiful. I, I, don't, I don't know. I just think of it as kind of this beautiful marriage between science and art mm-hmm. um, in any kind of paleontology paleozoology, whatever. And I think it's important to really realize that um, because, you know, it's it's what engages the audience. Mm-hmm. Like the arts are what is engaging a lot of the audience to dinosaurs, you know, Jurassic Park, for instance. Mm-hmm. That is a depiction of dinosaurs based on the 90s, um, but that's influenced a lot of people and a lot of both adults and children, um, all ages, are coming to museums they're looking at the skeletons and maybe pointing out like like noticing some differences and asking about them or you know things like that so mm-hmm. yeah i, I think too like when you see a band and they're playing performing live what you what i like most is when they play it and it's got to be a little bit different either because they're not in the studio and they're not the same instruments or they just have a different take or the singer for the recording that one time they did yeah. it uh, had a particular inflection but they don't usually do that and so hearing yeah. what's a little bit different i think is really special or if you go to you know paint night and everybody's painting the same thing at the front of the room i like seeing what's different between everyone because there yes. is where you see um i don't know some sort of style or characteristic that's uh, that's special and i like to find Absolutely. that as opposed to what's also similar so i, I think that's a big part of the, the paleo what has somebody done that's a little bit different or uh, or that and you really yeah it's uh, those are the fun spots and the disagreeable spots, but those are the neat spots to look at. And uh, yeah, definitely. And I think you're right. There's a connection between dinosaurs and art. I can't imagine growing up loving dinosaurs and not also drawing them as much as you can. Yes. <laughs> right. And so, if I ever hear about a paleontologist, like, oh, I can't draw. Like, what? Are you kidding? How did you get into this field without wanting to to just draw them as much as you could? Um, they're so cool. <laughs> oh, definitely. Like just. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Like I was always drawing them yeah. as a kid. You know, I was looking at books, and what was what was I drawing them from? Books. That yeah. was also yeah. showing artistic depictions of them, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like it's this continuous cycle of just people being becoming fascinated due to the arts, and then giving the art themselves along with the science, um, kind of marrying the two in their own with their own perception. Like, that's why we see dinosaur illustrations of all different colors, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and, and, and distributions of feather patterns, you know, it's, it's like, like, well, we pro- they probably had feathers. We know they had feathers. So how did they have feathers? I don't know. So mm-hmm. you just draw it, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, but you, you definitely hit the nail on the head there, I think, as far as, like, just the general grasping of a, an audience typically children but also you know older uh, adults as well like big big children the fascination yeah. with dinosaurs is because we think but they look cool yeah that's that's the basis that's the very core of it i think so mm-hmm. I, I and i think too with dinosaurs to to imagine them in real life there are a few things 
uh, that we go about in a regular day where you, you can really feel humbled by the thing in front of you to, to you know, imagine being completely like Tyrannosaur comes out of the paddock and starts walking around the land cruises and you're defenseless. Like there isn't, there isn't a yeah. thing you're going to do. And to, and then the movie does a great job of just saying, you know, you are powerless in this moment. And uh, I think there's, there's yeah. a respect there maybe that, <laughs> that yeah. it commands of, 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 uh, of, of strong imagination anyhow. <laughs> so oh, for how, sure, for sure. how about the novel if, if you watch the film at six i presume that you did not uh rush to find the novel right away <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know from my memory like i i just recently started reading it um i recently started it again and mm-hmm. i've gotten like halfway through I, I love I love how the novel's looking. I mean, I I, I don't know the novel mm-hmm. myself, which is why I'm like reading it, like trying to read it in depth now because I it's I'm like all right, it's been enough time. I gotta mm-hmm. I gotta really read this. I, I'm really liking it. Just it, it's a lot darker. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a lot darker than the movie. Um, I appreciate that the movie um, is the tone that it is, though. I feel like the 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 heart and inspiration you in that tone in mm-hmm. certain. Uh, parts of the movie really are what make take it home for me like the the book is more of a horror mm-hmm. i feel like compared to that but, but the, you know the book is also it goes into a lot more of the details for sure mm-hmm. uh, certain concepts and things which i, I appreciate so mm-hmm. yes I, the characters get to have an inner monologue as they challenge what they see or yes or challenge exactly. one another that uh doesn't really i mean you don't really get a disagreement between the characters too, too much, except for, I think there's like a boardroom scene. Yeah. And when Malcolm and Hammond are what light up it, planning how to get the power back on, there's not really a lot of oh, yes. moments yeah. where they're, they're actually quarreling. So like, it's funny how, how you, you mean in a drama, you, the, the essence is conflict and the conflict, they, they don't really lean into too strongly with the, with the film, which is, which keeps it yeah. pleasant. <laughs> I don't remember yeah. ever feeling really unnerved by the people too much, which is which is good. I mean, I imagine that Muldoon could have been much more intimidating, or Hammond could have been much more intimidating. But uh, they kept everybody yeah, very, yeah. very PG, which was fine. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it's no. I, I think that I mean the way it translates. I, I definitely as I'm as I'm reading, like I'm like, oh, I get why that was changed, mm-hmm. but it works for the novel. You know, like it's it's something where you know in a movie it. Some things just don't translate well. Um, and I think the way that it was kind of presented in the movie is still true to the novel, I think, from what I'm seeing. Uh, but at the same time, um, taking a life of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I mean, like little little changes, like the sauropod is a different sauropod. Yeah. There's an apatosaurus and or apatosauruses in the novel. There's a brachiosaurus in the movie. I'm very partial to Brachiosaurus. Maybe <laughs> sure. it's because of the movie. Um, and then, of course, my favorite animal is the Triceratops. That's like my all-time favorite part of the whole movie. It's my favorite species. In the book, it's a Stegosaurus, which I also love. But yeah. I really love Triceratops. Yeah. So I think those kinds of things, it's like, okay, I kind of like... And it also, in the in the novel, it kind of portrayed, from what I'm reading so far, it's portraying Triceratops as this like lazy oaf that doesn't do anything. And I'm like, oh, come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So. Yes, the Triceratops. I recall they they have, I want to say eight, and they had to keep them in groups smaller than five or something. I don't know. They had to keep them in smaller yeah. groups because they they were very 
antagonistic to one another when they get into the crowds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now they're all supposed to be ladies, so maybe <laughs> he's got something to do with that. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, uh, so I do want to ask you about Triceratops. I wonder if it's more than just a coincidence that it was uh, so wonderful in Jurassic Park and it becomes one of your favorites afterwards. But um, as Dr. Alan Grant and the team of consultants arrive at Jurassic Park, Grant is astonished at first at the sight of the Apatosaurus. And I think everyone is when they do it in the film with the Brachiosaurus. Well, and Grant, is, mm -hmm. his stunned mind makes academic associations and he laughs and he's like stupefied by the sight of this thing. And then within seeing the animal for only a few seconds, he already begins to accept it as true and therefore uses the Apatosaur he's viewing to answer long-standing paleontological questions. And so you, Elliot, are like Alan Grant, having published lots of papers on dinosaurs, and the novel gives us a special encounter with an infant Triceratops. Uh, mm. With Triceratops being an animal that you specifically published on, and you declared now that it is your favorite, uh, like Grant, if you found yourself close enough to feed, to hand-feed a Triceratops, and were able to observe its chewing and jaw mechanics, what yeah. would you be looking to see as you're doing that? What would I be looking to see? Oh, great question. I would first be uh, looking at how it takes the food, mm -hmm. right? So, like, just the, the acquisition of food is an interesting question on its own. Is it coming up from the front? Is it kind of grabbing it from the side? Um, and then, of course, how does it hold the, the food back with its tongue to the teeth? Because it's got this huge tooth battery mm -hmm. in the back of its jaw or in, the, in its cheek region, but it has to, like, pull the food in to get there first. Um I would observe the the way the beak looks, the cur the cur the carrot, the keratinous sheath of the beak. How big does it get? How because all we have is the bone inside the keratinous mm -hmm. sheath, but it's it's uh, I mean it's a whole separate structure that it would have had on top of it. So how big is it? How sharp is it? Are there these like um, edges that are good for, would be good for cropping? Are they cropping the plant material with the beak? Um, and then, yeah, how, what direction are they chewing? Is it matching what we know in the toothware of pulling the jaw back as well as going up and down? Mm -hmm. uh, kind of a combination of that, up and down and pulling back in a palinal motion. Um, and also, I mean, I do, I do a lot of work with jaw muscles. So can I look inside of the mucosa and see <laughs> where, like, the mucosa is covering jaw muscles? Um, how far forward do they come? Because one of my papers uh, deals with, um, certain jaw muscles and, and how they might have um, attached to the front um, and how does that relate to the quote cheeks of, mm -hmm. you know, things like that so yeah lots of lots of things yeah no I can only imagine like it yeah what, what a fascinating thing is it possible um with with like the the beak and the keratinous sheath like I know with um some rodents if uh if they're not uh, chewing a lot that they they can overgrow and they can become a yes. problem. Or you can get an infection. Do you do you think that's a possibility that these these big beaks might have had deformities or like I just wonder all the different. Oh yeah, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure they had. I mean, birds it happens in birds all the time, yeah. right? So I mean, keratin can have a can get a life of its own sometimes. <laughs> things, but um, it would have definitely definitely been a hindrance to them if they really. If there are some really bad abnormalities, but mm -hmm. it's not something that it's a it's a great question. I've never really thought of it, but mm -hmm. yeah, for sure, they probably had different mal malformations of the beak. Um, some of them might not have been a hindrance, like maybe yeah. it was like you know outgrowths going outward versus on the actual occlusal mm -hmm. surface. So, well, I, I'm just thinking like if you got a a man's hand and you had just the bones, would you necessarily yeah. imagine that there were fingernails? 
I don't know. No, yeah. And so when you get the this beak, I wonder maybe it's got you know uh, I think flamingos have kind of uh, like they're not teeth, but they got oh little little like fake they fake got teeth quote unquote something happened snatch and grab. Them. Yeah, I just wonder if debate. Uh, I mean. I guess we can talk about how different ceratopsians might be from one another in terms of species, but yeah, all the different things that it could be that wouldn't be in the fossil. Um, really yeah. curious things. And so, uh, how do you envision a triceratops taking a bite of um, of uh, out of its you know for dinner? Is it? Mm -hmm. Do you think it's putting its whole mouth over a branch, or do you think it's uh, just pulling up at the ground, or? Did you think its tongue is going to play a big role, like a giraffe, or what do you think? I think in the beginning, yeah, I think in the beginning, um, it's probably using its beak definitely to strip the plant material. Um, these things are eating really tough woody, woody conifers, and as well as probably ferns and cycads as well, but mainly the wo more tough woody um, coniferous plant material. Mm -hmm. um, and because their 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 beaks are a little more pointed than other herbivores, it would have been a lot more selective. So because of that more pointed beak, they could really kind of pick and choose mm -hmm. what they, they wanted to eat more carefully. But yeah, definitely grabbing it with the beak. Now, whether it's like straight front or kind of to the side, it's hard to tell. Probably mainly going in front of the beak, but there's probably variations in that as well. Um, so yeah, and then of course, yeah, it would it would have needed a little bit of help from the tongue to bring the food back as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think tongue, the tongue's an interesting structure for dinosaurs because we don't have it. Yeah, like all all we all we could base reconstructing a tongue off of is what's known as the hyoid bone, which is the a bone um, underneath that basically supports the tongue underneath the mandible. But that's not very well preserved in most mm. dinosaurs. It's like it's like floats away. So we don't know much about it. There's an ankylosaur that we know that has a really big, big hyoid, which likely meant it had a really complex uh, tongue that could have done a lot of stuff. So it was definitely mm. ankylosaurs were definitely using their tongues a lot. Um, and tongues are really important in any feeding and mammals, especially mm -hmm. like to be able to manipulate food while you're chewing it. You know, push it from side to side. Um, you don't think about it, but the tongue does a real a lot of work, mm. and so it would be great to be able to reconstruct tongues in these animals more. But mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I imagine a, an ankylosaur uh, being very inflexible and probably not being yeah. able to rear up or climb or do a lot of things. So a, a really uh, advanced tongue might be very handy for for an animal that were sure. was hungry sure. but couldn't move Absolutely. very well. Do ceratopsians they're distantly related? Do um, do you see them? I mean, they're not as rigid, but uh, do yeah, you see them as being rigid. also required? Like the head is so big, um, yeah, maybe yeah. be able to. Like, well, I mean, ceratopsians are just their own thing. Like they have huge jaw muscles, yeah. really powerful jaws in general, and kylosaurs have a relatively much weaker jaw than a than say a triceratops does. So, um, just that alone um, would you you could you could see that. Um, you could say that the maybe you know the the jaw muscles are doing more of the action than say an ankylosaur. Mm -hmm. So whether that whether or not that means the tongue is less complex than a ceratopsian, I can't answer that. I don't <laughs> know. Uh, but it would be interesting if it was a little less complex, because it's like you know if it can't have as strong of a jaw, maybe use something else. But 
but both of them work together. It's not like one is doing more than the other. Like the tongue is manipulating so that the food can get to the teeth. Hmm. Um, so when it's something that has, say, like a dental battery, like a triceratops, it could have been very useful to have a really complex tongue. Mm-hmm. So I would say it probably had a had a very active um, uh, muscular tongue as well. But who knows? We don't. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to tell at this point. We don't have the fossil material. <laughs> a, tr- a triceratops head is so strange, and not only because it is yeah. so strange, just period, but also when you look at it, you don't, I mean, you expect to see the frill, you expect to see the horns, but when you take a good look at it, you, I, anyhow, am very surprised how big the nasal cavity and how long its jaw is. It has oh, yeah. a really long face. Um it's just incredible. And so um, do you think that when you have a long jaw as a, as a herbivore, does that mean something? Does that indicate something that maybe something with a flatter face like a chimp doesn't do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. There are multiple factors into it, mm-hmm. right? So if you have a long jaw, it could mean that you have more, more space for jaw muscles to attach. Or it could mean that you need the teeth to be in a certain position, like either further back in the jaw or constricted to the front. Mm -hmm. And all of these different factors can play a role in like elongation of the face. Um, Having, having a, so biomechanically, very, very basic level, the longer your jaw, the faster you can close your mouth. Okay. That's, That's a very basic way to say it. But the shorter your jaw, the more you can actually relatively have more power. But that's also dependent on how big the muscles are compared to the jaw muscle, or compared to the skull, as well as the you know the positions of the teeth and so on. But like you, there's kind of a trade-off between speed and power, and mm-hmm. herbivores typically use power. A lot of predators, you'll know, have a longer snout, right? Because they need to be able to snatch their prey really fast. Um, but herbivores are really chewing their food. So they're relatively shorter, but yes, a lot of herbivores still have elongate jaws, but they're also deep. Mm-hmm. They're not only long, but they're also tall. Um, up, um, up and deep, up and down, like mm-hmm. they're taller. So um, that also helps in being able to crush food uh, more toward the front of the jaw as well. So longer jaw could mean you could fit more plants in there. Um, you could eat it a certain, you could take in food a different way, like from the side, um, things like that. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting question, but it's one of the, one of those very multifactorial answers. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, so, so just because you have a long jaw, it doesn't mean you have a fast jaw. Yeah. It just means that that part of the biomechanical application will say that you have a fast job, but then you add in other things, then it's more <laughs> power still, but in different ways. The head is so <laughs> big. I can't imagine it being uh, like a fly trap or anything like that. But, yeah. <laughs> so there's things that you, when, you, when you're doing your research, you can prove and, there are things, and therefore you write about them and you can make a strong argument. There is evidence there. But then there are things that you probably suspect, but you could not maybe include into a paper because there's just no basis but it may, it's reasonable but you can't add it to the paper what are some of the things you believe about triceratops that are, uh you know our head canon that you, you know you, you believe in but you're not going to publish because there's no bone that tells you so what uh, <laughs> you know in in your oh, version of a man. triceratops your favorite dinosaur what uh, what's that's, it doing that uh, you can't publish about <laughs> What do I believe about Triceratops that I would never publish? Uh, because we don't. 
that's 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 a well i i actually of course there's yeah obviously yeah no evidence to this kind of thing but like the protective nature of a of ceratopsians yeah. i feel like they would be really good in a family and like there are cases where we see a few specimens with each other or a lot of specimens with each other in some cases um they're close to each other anyway but um I, I like to imagine them as really uh, protective of each other. Mm-hmm. And whether, whether that means like protection from a, a predator or other, just anything else around. Um, uh, like I, I like the, the image of multiple triceratopses in a line against a couple T-Rexes or, you know, things like that. That's, that, you know, that, that's what, I mean, well, how could it not be that? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But oh, yeah, there's no evidence for that kind of thing. And of course, there's no true evidence of like Triceratops beating a Tyrannosaurus in battle. But in my mind, and I have written this briefly in a paper recently, that you know, if it did, it would we wouldn't see the fossil of it because it's putting its horn through its belly and yes. its belly is soft tissue, and that doesn't fossilize. So it could be that some of the T Rexes that are alive today. Or not alive today, sorry, <laughs> that you see my God. That you see in the museums today. Yes. Um, the skeletons you see, it could be that one of them may have been killed by a triceratops. You don't know. Yeah. Like because it it wouldn't it wouldn't fossilize. Whereas a T Rex biting into a triceratops mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and triceratops surviving, now that will fossilize. You can see the the healing and you can see where the tooth mark was. But I feel like it's more, more diff- it would be a lot more difficult to see evidence of a triceratops mm-hmm. winning in battle against a predator or, you know, uh, fighting each other, mm-hmm. intraspecific um, fighting as well. So there's been research into both of these, but um, yeah, my, my head cannon <laughs> ceratops <laughs> did all that kind of, and there's variation in the way that different ceratopsians would have fought both each other and their predators based on how their horns look and things like that. There are, there are a lot of people. I say, oh, they, they probably didn't do that. It's just, <laughs> there's no evidence for that, blah, blah, blah. And to me, they're just the naysayers. They don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's a lot of things that, that could be, um, that they, they could have done that we just don't know about. Right on. What I loved about that interpretation of the Triceratops with its head right at that belly level for the Tyrannosaur. Yeah. What I love about that is, you know, in the novel, we get uh, the Velociraptors are in the Dilophosaurus. They, mm-hmm. they disembowel people. <laughs> and yes. uh, yeah. and uh, just the, this concept that, well, yeah, that's what maybe some some of these dinosaurs are doing. But imagine the Triceratops and like with two horns, we're talking like two broadswords, just yeah. cranking it right across the belly of a, of a, of a carnivore. Is, uh, is the exact same idea on a totally different scale because the amount, like, the head is heavy. <laughs> Imagine being struck with that much force. It'd be like being hitting by, you know, a car that was a sword. <laughs> It'd just be insane. Yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah. That's, that's exactly how I like to picture it. Yeah, for sure. I could just imagine these little tiny theropods that are standing in a row and a triceratops with a barrel rolling through them with their horns. Yeah. <laughs> with, like... Pick, pick off each one. <laughs> so um, you've also done quite a bit of, uh, so I guess we'll talk about the paper that you were describing, uh, you sent me a copy, it was awesome. It seems like to read like a chapter in, uh, in a book all about triceratops heads. Is, oh, it, is it going, is this a part of the book? Uh, no, no, no. It, oh. that, that is a part of a special issue um, dedicated to uh, Dr. Peter Dodson, who's a okay. very prominent 
prominent dinosaur paleontologist legend in the field. Um, and uh, he just recently retired, so it was an issue in, of anatomical record in his honor. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I did. I did also talk about that stuff in my book as well. That's okay. Coming up. Um, well, while we're yeah. on this subject, then first of all, that <laughs> that chapter was awesome. Um, well, thank you. And yeah, you said you had a book coming out. Why don't you tell us about what uh, when that's coming out, where people could look for it, and what uh, what they can expect inside. Yeah, um, so the book is t- entitled uh, An Illustrated Guide to Dinosaur Feeding Biology. Um, it's um, authored by myself as well as my co-author, uh, Dave Weiss, Dr. Dave Weissample, who was my PhD mentor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Um, and uh, this, this book is years in the making. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy it's finally coming out. Uh, and it's basically a synthesis of um, all the research that's ever been done on dinosaur feeding, all the, all the way back from the 1800s to today, essentially. So um, just kind of looking, um, first it, it introduces kind of historical aspects of studies and then goes into the, um, the anatomy and uh, methodology, but then it gets into the bulk of it is chapters on different groups of dinosaurs. And basically each chapter talks about the anatomy of that dinosaur and what studies are related to feeding in that dinosaur, both in the head as well as the neck and even um, postcranial aspects of it. Anything related to their feeding ecology or biology. It's really, the book releases on June 8th, uh, sorry, June 13th mm-hmm. of this year. And, uh, yeah, Johns Hopkins University uh, Press. Really and, cool. Yeah, I, I hope I hope it um, proves to be useful to both <laughs> dinosaur enthusiasts and paleontologists alike. Mm-hmm. So. It sounds like something that would come out of a veterinary school. Like, I can just imagine Grey's Anatomy <laughs> uh, for dinosaur faces. Yeah, that was, that was a little bit of the idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. So June 13th is a wonderful day because that'll be... So the... Jurassic Park, of course, came out 30 years ago, June 11th, to the, to right. the general. But I didn't get to see it for opening night. I had to see it two days later. So June 13th oh, is the well, anniversary there you go. of me <laughs> first seeing Jurassic Park and thinking I am in over my head. Because uh, <laughs> that opening scene with the uh, the shooter, <laughs> it really uh, oh. it worked me up quite a bit, I think. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, so speaking of, of uh, lots of different types of dinosaurs and how they eat, I have a big hadrosaur question. We were at the American okay. Museum of Natural History for the March break, which is really cool. And I yeah. was we get into the Hall of Ornithischians, and they're huge. I mean, oh, I've seen yeah. a few a few skeletons. I thought I had a good feeling for them. Like the holotype, I'm near Toronto of uh, the Parasaurolophus is mm-hmm. in the neighborhood, and um, and I just Excellent. for whatever reason don't recall being impressed with how big it is. But boy, the mounted skeletons that they had in, in the American Museum of Natural History are massive, and uh, yeah, and uh, so hadrosaurs are no slouch. I'm sure that uh, catching a juvenile would have been wonderful for for a carnivore, but uh, the mature ones oh, don't yeah. seem like you would spend your time <laughs> going out there. There's something. Um, oh, but yeah. it begs for the sure. question. You you've also looked at how do these things eat and chew, and what is their mouth doing? First of all, when we hear about a battery of teeth, was it literally the whole jaw was just filled back to front with with uh, with like molars, or how does it come together? Yeah, so things like hadrosaurs especially had the the epitome of dental batteries, and what it means is basically it's each tooth row, both in the upper and lower jaws, were filled with packed columns of uh, around the like five teeth. Um, 
in, in that grow upward, right? So mm-hmm. all of them are just in columns and they're, they're packed enough so that when the animal is occluding and actually eating, it creates this plane that this flat plane in which the upper jaw can uh, basically um, occlude with the lower jaw and create tooth wear um, in that way. But it could pull its jaw backward and upward and curl it to the side um, against this really long flat plane. Mm-hmm. But it's hundreds of teeth in the man in the jaws, just incredible, incredible um, structure. I, I don't know. Every time I look at it, it's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> teeth that are just constantly growing too okay um there's ever-growing teeth that are packed tightly together and creating these big occlusal planes to really be able to feed on really tough uh, plant material okay um, woody plant material so um, these animals were really well adapted to eating from palm conifer- coniferous trees as well as angiosperms in the later part of the cretaceous as well so to me i get they, this image of um of a brake pad that's never ending and it just is always replacing yeah. itself and just <laughs> exactly. slowing that tight end um, absolutely yeah yeah that's a great image of it yeah so in the center of the jaw when you get to underneath where we're t- where the tongue might go is that mm-hmm. also all filled with teeth or is it is there like a, a a mouth cavity there afterwards so you got the teeth along the tooth row like normal, but then yeah, it's just the tongue underneath. Okay. Um, there's no there's no separate set of teeth anywhere else. It's just these massive tooth batteries where the teeth are in any other dinosaur. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're so big and there's so many teeth that you know you see why some of the hadrosaurs are as big as they were mm-hmm. because their heads needed to be long and big enough to yeah. fit all those teeth as well. Uh, and some of them, like you said, just got to be truly gigantic. Like yeah. it's, it's amazing to me how some, how big some hadrosaurs could actually get, rivaling, you can rival some sauropods. Like, yeah. Oh, certainly, certainly. Uh, yeah. Just I remember as a kid hearing the word battery and thousands of teeth and all of this. I just pictured like honeycombs on the top and the bottom, and I just, oh yeah. <laughs> and so it's always been this point of confusion. And then if it were like honeycombs, where the heck does the tongue go? <laughs> like it just didn't make a lot of sense. But. No, yeah, no. It's, it's basically two tooth rows on the side, up, and then two on the upper yeah. jaw, and they include against each other. But the middle, the tongue is still in the middle. It's yeah. Just, yeah. I can picture a, a great uh, uh, photo of uh, Corythosaurus's skull, and it's got the the wonderful uh, indentation where the jaws. You you know you see the teeth, and then it kind of goes out. Anyhow, it gives it oh, this yeah. wonderful smirk. <laughs> I think that it just, oh, it's got attitude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, that's it. So would that be an indication that they had big cheeks, or do you think that? Um, what do you suppose that when it when it ducks in like that? And I think the Triceratops may do that too. But when when you get that yeah, indentation, yeah. So, theropods do not have this. Um, no, but they, no, the inset tooth row is very much an ornithischian yeah. trait. Um, so things like Ceratopsians and Hadrosaurs and Ankylosaurs and Stegosaurs—they all have inset teeth. Um, that did lead to a debate of if any of these animals had cheeks. Now, whether or not a cheek was a muscular cheek, like a muscle that bridges between the upper and lower teeth mm-hmm. on the outside, or if it's just a muscle that comes from the back extending forward, which is a hypothesis that I presented recently. Um, and also, if it means that there is a flap of skin that covers that area as well to, quote, help food stay in the mouth, <laughs> um, which is what some people... Um, kind of argue for in in defense of the ornithischians having cheeks. Um, so yeah, there's a lot lot of factors that come into play here. Um, and in a recent paper that I was mentioning, it's 
I, I basically kind of go into this hypothesis of, well, maybe it's the main jaw muscle, the most, the outermost layer of the main jaw muscles are able to extend forward to actually help in that backward motion, that palinal feed, feeding motion in these animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there is a that ridge that um, that insect tooth row you can see in ridge that continues on from toward the back of the jaw forward. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's a it's a plausible reconstruction. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see if some biomechanical uh, experimentation with that muscle reconstruction mm-hmm. as well to see what happens. But. Um, but yeah, no, that would factor in as well. And if it had cheeks or quote lips, I always put these words in quotes. In quotes. <laughs> yeah, see, you can't see my quotes in uh, the podcast, but <laughs> noted, noted, here. yes. <laughs> um, because mammalian cheeks are different than yeah. are, are their own thing. Man, mammalian lips, because mammals have um, a separate set of muscles that are with that are um, attached beneath the skin on our faces, whereas reptiles don't have that. Mm-hmm. Reptiles have jaw muscles, but not these facial expression muscles. Mm-hmm. And birds don't the seem to help with that. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say birds don't seem to help with that. Uh, how to figure out what yeah. cheeks are doing either? Thanks a lot. Oh birds. yeah, yeah, birds. Thanks yeah, exactly. Nothing. Birds with their beak, they're not helpful in trying to figure this out for sure. So yeah, lots of interesting questions, which we're still all going into. But it's so of... crazy because so many of these ornithischians have a beak at the tip, and they have that yes. cretinous thing. So. On a hadrosaur, how pronounced would you expect these to be? And then just in general, what we're talking stegosaurs and, and other things, how does the beak affect the rest of it? Whereas, if, I mean, sauropods do not have uh, the beak. They, they're totally different lineage, yeah. so uh, they probably don't have the inset teeth as well. Like, it's just so strange mm-hmm. that uh, th- these these herbivores get so big and they got the... How do you think the beak was specialized to make them succeed for, for all that time? And uh, I don't know, do you think it behaviorally affected affected them if you're interpreting ornithischians as a, as a group you think the beak plays a big role as an prominent feature oh, like... for sure yeah the beak played, probably played a really big role in their feeding um especially like hadrosaurs we actually have a quote fossil mummy of a keratinous sheath on a beak mm. in which you know the the, the bone itself kind of like creates this quote duck bill looking thing yeah. but they weren't really duck bills because they have they actually have their keratin, the keratinous sheath actually hooks downward okay. and it kind of goes down in this big flat. It looks like a big flap in front of their face. So it's not just staying up here like that. The beak actually hooks down and that creates a really good cropping mechanism. So if you have the upper and lower beak kind of going up against each other, it would really help them to be able to strip the plant material off of higher, higher branches. Cause mm-hmm. you know, like we said, hadrosaurs are really big in yeah. a lot of cases. So, um, they, they're eating off of trees higher up um, compared to like a ceratopsian or an ankylosaur. So they're able to really crop the plants with their beak and then, again, pull the food back with their tongue and teeth and things like that. Hadrosaurs are really broad-billed as well. So they have a really wide bill and a really hooked bill with the, cur- yeah. the keratin. So just eating, a, just taking in a lot of food at once in every every case. So. That's so crazy. And it's, oh, yeah. uh, it's interesting how you mentioned that the hadrosaurs, very big. Stegosaurs are the biggest thing other than sauropods. Uh, <laughs> they were eating, eating, <laughs> eating vegetables in the, in the late Jurassic. They, yeah. they got so big and they have, I mean, stegosaurus doesn't. Hadrosaurus, ceratopsians, really big skulls. And yes. they got big and they ate lots of plants. However, and this is kind of maybe two points. So I've had this 
problematic interpretation of like so Jurassic Park shows a brachiosaur coming up into the treetops. Mm-hmm. Its head is as big as a, a gondola. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was like, I'm I'm fairly sure sauropod heads didn't get that big. It was huge. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. just as big as a is yeah, it's the biggest thing you've ever seen. And uh, so we get to the American Museum of Natural History, finally get to see a sauropod skull. I would like to think I mean, I understand they're very rare to find, but I'd like to think yes. that it's a, a fairly accurate representation of an authentic mm-hmm. diplodocid or something like that. Uh, they are yeah. not big; they have very small heads, and it's a uh, very small heads. Yeah. Uh, like like you could fit it under your arm and carry it around, <laughs> as opposed to what they show in the film. And so uh, it's astonishing that you would get these long jaws on the herbivores that are specializing in eating vegetation. And gets, I, maybe because it's a Saurischian animal instead, but it's just completely different. And it's got this little head, smaller teeth, and it doesn't. Yeah. See, maybe the neck is doing more of the eating than the the jaws. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what else to, to think. Um, why do you suppose the sauropods are so different from the ornithischians? If you were to guess or hypothesize, yeah, I mean, <laughs> of course, yeah, a lot of it has to do with they are a different lineage. But I think what is interesting about sauropods especially is you know they you know their teeth do show wear so they're still doing a little bit of oral processing um you know, diplodocids are especially got those tiny pencil-like teeth restricted mm-hmm. to the front they're, they're maybe stripping some bark but a vast majority of the food processing is happening in the gut and mm-hmm. i think sauropods are just really focusing on gut processing rather than any kind of initial a lot a lot of initial chewing which mm-hmm. they don't do they didn't do. Um, uh, whereas ornithischians were able to, of course, process a lot of the food in the beginning before before swallowing. And a lot of mammals do that, obviously. But, you know, in large mammals, they have the teeth, but they have huge gut fermentation chambers. Some of them are for gut fermenters, like cows and giraffes and deer and things like that, where their stomach is huge and multi-chambered. And then other things are hindgut fermenters, where every the, most, the majority of the processing of plant material happens toward the back of the gut, like in the sea gut and in the colon. So I assumed that sauropods were doing a lot of gut processing, and mm-hmm. they just let their guts do it. And because their bodies are so big, they were able to do it. Um, but it's just a matter of, you know, give and take. You have a smaller head, you need a bigger gut. You have a bigger head, you don't need as big of a gut. But mm. you still need a big gut <laughs> regardless. Oh, and they, they do have big guts, but, you know, sauropods were eating all day. They had to. They had to eat all day, every day. Um, they're de- probably decimating forests all over the place. Yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah, no, it's it's definitely an interesting question. As far as, like, why one is the one way or the other, you could get into speculation mm-hmm. on that. But it's, it's really just, I, I just love seeing the diversity in it. It's like, well, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to be an herbivore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, different animals take, take advantage of different ways depending on what they're given at a certain point in time, mm-hmm. right? So they can have, get ad- evolve adaptations based on what, they're, what they have. Like wh- whatever, whatever they have dictates what possibilities there are to evolve toward. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just are in different situations. They're eating different things. So, yeah. The environments these animals must have lived in must have grown so fast. And they must have been just jammed with with the things that they had to eat. Like, it, it must have been yes. just incredible. I can't imagine. Like, I don't know. You'll hear that a sauropod is found in, like, a desert or something like that. I just don't understand. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I could be convinced. I, but it's just, I say, okay, it died in the desert. <laughs> 
<laughs> we know that it died in the desert. We don't. Um, <laughs> but but they find them. Flesh Fantasia. You'll see. You'll see. Uh, just a, a strange and incredible. Yeah, it must have been just like a an evergreen spring, just yes, cranking out absolutely. food for them. Because do you think the biggest sauropods were living in groups? Like, do you think there's a world that says, "Oh, it's okay for this this thirty of these things to, to like live here so. for a month"? Like. <laughs> Yeah, I sure. Why not? I mean, I, I would think that they did live in family groups. I'm not sure of like how many herds have been found in the fossil record. I don't know that yeah. detail um, at the top of my head. But I, I, I like, I'd like to think that they were in huge groups. You yeah. just have these massive animals all walking together. You know, sometimes we don't think of the world as a really big place, and obviously it is. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah exactly. There's a lot of room for everybody, I guess. They're just like taking down trees left and right they're just dismantling whatever force they can they <laughs> come across and they just keep going you know just a walking disaster well it's like when uh yeah in those uh those uh, uh monster movies where you say you follow the path of destruction and that's where you'll find yes it. yeah just, <laughs> exactly. there's nothing left deforestation nothing left. all the first sure. lumberjacks really <laughs> <laughs> well um i wanted to ask you more about elephants and i wanted to ask you more about uh dicynodonts because uh, oh, yeah. it sounds like you're doing some neat <laughs> stuff with that um but we're just right out of time when um this this chapter that we're covering in the book is a, a three-part series we're doing on one called return right at the end it's about page mm-hmm. 340 so you got okay you got to catch up <laughs> or else it's gonna okay, get spoiled for you. it's gonna be spoiled <laughs> for you when you listen to the episode as you're doing the reread at the beginning you're going through the beginning stuff what um what's impressed you that maybe you didn't expect we're so familiar with the with the films they're so visually present in our minds that yes. when you read the text and you go oh geez um what, what's uh, been a, a refreshing surprise or maybe something you were unprepared for uh, as you're going through the beginning of the book uh, <laughs> the beginning of the book uh the surprise oh, we're talking about real surprise was yeah. the part with the uh the procomsignathids and the baby that, yeah. that really that really took me off <laughs> i was like oh okay this is what we're doing okay <laughs> i see <laughs> um but um, I really, I really enjoy seeing the thought processes of all the characters. I feel like um, Mike uh, Crichton did a really great job of kind of showing what these characters were really thinking and feeling as mm-hmm. every little, every little aspect of their journey was happening. You know, so I really that was really um, great to see. I, I enjoy. I, I feel like you know there are there's more with the dinosaurs than I thought. Like in the there's more more dinosaurs than in the movie, mm-hmm. obviously, and there's more more happening with dinosaurs than in the movie. But and so, some things are great. Other things, I'm like, oh, I wish they would have you know treated that better. I, I really got to me the the that Lex would yell at the Triceratops, "You're boring, stop it," or something. I don't know. She was like, You're just, "Just move, do something." <laughs> I'm like, "Come on," <laughs> but um, but that's just a personal <laughs> bias. <laughs> I think that you're um, in a good company. No, I really, I really yeah. enjoy, enjoy reading through it, for sure. Yeah, being uh, perturbed by Lex is, I think, a recurring theme in the novel, you'll find. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a big takeaway, I think. I like Lex in the movie a lot more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, there's a tremendous amount of excellent foreshadowing about, like, Jesus, these velociraptors ever got out. They've managed to tuck that oh, note yeah. in there all the time, but they don't get out until right towards the end, but... Uh, yeah, they always <laughs> there's always this warning. Well, everything's fine so long as those raptors aren't out yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is pretty good. 
Oh, well, man. <laughs> thanks so much for coming on the show. I've, uh, I've had an awesome time. This is awesome. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. Had a great time. Well, thank you very much. All right, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Nabavizi Day. That was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with that interview. Uh, this week's text is, is return, spanning from pages 317 to 344. Again, we're just taking a little bit of it. In uh, the synopsis, in the second installment, Grant turns the generators back on and finds Gennaro, and Wu gets eviscerated, and Timalex confront a raptor in the kitchen. So characters, uh, we have Alan Grant. He communicates with Wu, and to expedite their discourse over the radio, he prefers Wu just call him Alan, and I'll talk to Grant on page 326. I'm not entirely sure what Grant is using to illuminate his progress through the maintenance shed. Gennaro and Arnold both had trouble seeing in the darkness, but Grant is able to, you know, read labels and things like that. And he's also banging his head, and Wu feels like Grant is beginning to sound irritable during this quest on 327. Once they have the generators running, everyone is thrilled, except Grant. Quote, he sounded flat, dull, and then he asks... What do I have to do now? On page 328. In the dark, he uses his hands to feel the pipes until he reaches the ladder before realizing there's something else there beside the generator making noise. A man yelling? On page 329. It's Gennaro. Grant sees, quote, three glowing shapes moving in the darkness, and then he sees the truck and moves towards it. On page 329, 330. And Grant leads Gennaro out of the maintenance shed on 333. They're uncertain where the injured raptor is, still. Uh, while Grant and Gennaro are exiting the maintenance shed, Wu is eviscerated, and the three raptors head back to the visitor center, just as Grant comes to the edge of the maintenance building and peers into the fog. On 335. Lex Murphy. Remember, they're in the kitchen. Grant leaves Lex and Tim in the cafeteria while he's off restarting the generator on page 322. Lex is eager to get something to eat, hopefully a hamburger, but there's no power to cook with, so perhaps ice cream instead. Lex hopes Grant can leave the radio behind, but he can't. So she has to follow Tim, who leads her through the dark cafeteria. She refuses candy bars because she's got her heart set on ice cream now, and Lex doesn't want a hamburger or anything. She wants ice cream now. So Tim is searching for those things for her when she notices that there's something else in the cafeteria with them. A Velociraptor. On page 328, Tim stashes her under a table in the corner behind a large waste bin and doesn't have time to answer her questions on page 330. She pokes her head out to see what's going on, which is goofy because it's too dark to see, remember? Uh, once the raptor is trapped, Lex is summoned to try and lock the door while Tim holds it, but of course it's too dark to see anything, so this poor girl's being yelled at to do an impossible thing, like see in the dark, to save their lives on, the three, on 333. But she gets it locked, and they escape, hand in hand. Tim Murphy. Tim leads Lex through the kitchen, searching the fridges before finding the walk-in freezer. Still no ice cream, but Lex warns him that there's something with them. And with the night vision goggles, he spots a velociraptor coming through the cafeteria on page 328. Realizing it's coming for the kitchen, he stashes Lex away and devises a plan to use frozen steaks from the freezer and, as a trail, lure the raptor away on page 330. The raptor enters the kitchen before Tim's ready. He's not in hiding. He's half-crouched and terrified. He doesn't move for fear of the raptor noticing him on 331. He's just behind a kitchen work table, but not hidden. He slowly lowers himself out of view, but the raptor spins its head towards him. Tim's heart pounds. The oddity of being confronted by a wild animal in a kitchen feels scarier than if they were in the jungle. It's so alien. He's horrified that the raptor may have found Lex, but relieved briefly that it's instead found one of the frozen steaks he's put out to draw its attention. Adding... To Tim's worries that the animal may find Lex or him, his legs are burning from the half-crouch he's frozen in. He's physically and emotionally being tormented with fear. His mind races. He worries excruciatingly that Lex might do something. Remember, she's always coughing at the wrong times to get herself killed, and he worries that this raptor has seen him. But the raptor follows the line of stakes into the freezer on 332. Tim flings himself against the freezer door to trap the animal. 
He springs his trap as soon as he can, slamming the door shut, but having to hold it in place while the raptor crashes into it, looking to escape, so he has to instruct Lex via his night vision goggles to lock the door. Ellie Sadler. She's continuing to distract the raptors effectively, but the raptors, in fact, are distracting her, as the skylight raptors have caught on to the plan and are coming down off the roof on 335. She thinks she's doing a great job and things are under control, which is always a bad move in this book, when Wu commands her to return inside. Dr. Henry Wu. He senses the frustration in Grant as he leads him through the maintenance shed to restart the generators, and again, the process isn't going you know, exactly as planned on 327. After the generators are activated, he looks back out the window and feels like the raptors, quote, had continued too long. It almost seemed as if they were trying to keep Ellie's attention on 334, in the same way that she was trying to keep theirs. Then Wu offers up his character's tragic flaw. The behavior of the dinosaurs had always been a minor consideration for Wu, and rightly so, because behavior was a second-order effect of DNA, like protein unfolding. You couldn't look at a DNA sequence and predict behavior. It was impossible on 334. Wu's work was, quote, purely empirical as a result. He tinkered with the DNA to see if he could find better behaviors. He doesn't treat the animals like living things, and therefore isn't expecting them to, quote, act alive, as Malcolm puts it. Wu's the type of guy who expects that he can recall a new form of life, contrary to the Irwin Chargraph quote in the epigraphs. He's the kind of guy who thinks that they can fix life by turning to version 4.4. This is Henry Wu. He felt the mysterious question of whether animals were behaving authentically or not. Quote, were they behaving as they really had in the past? It was an open question, ultimately unanswerable on 334, but he found that their successful breeding, quote, represented tremendous validation of his work on 334. That they can breed validates that Wu is a master at cloning ancient DNA, but proves that he stinks at this gene splicing, or whatever it is that you do to tinker with the code and make adjustments, because they're breeding. Your chromosome denials and irradiation, and probably your lysine contingency plans are all likely all complete failures. And that's on... You, woo. <laughs> Make a new plan, Stan. Drop off the key, Lee. Get the raptors free. So, Wu has never been concerned with the animal's behavior. Until now, watching these intelligent raptors planning a trap on 335, Harding insists Wu call Sattler back into the building because the raptors have left the skylight, and she's almost certainly in danger. So Wu throws open the front door to the lodge and commands Sattler to return, and she won't listen. And then Wu's critical flaw and his role in allowing Jurassic Park to become a reality must be judged by poetic justice. He is yanked bodily out the door, thrown onto his back, ripped up the middle, and the raptors are tugging at his intestines, eating him alive, while he's, quote, feebly reaching up with his hands to push the big head away. On page 335. That puts a shiver down your spine, guys. Robert Muldoon, he, Muldoon sees Wu at the door and doesn't like it being wide open, and then Wu is attacked very fast before there's time to do anything at 335. Muldoon slams the door shut once Wu, once Wu is dragged away, and he's dizzy with horror, and probably with whiskey too. Donald Gennaro. Grant finds Gennaro locked in a truck in the maintenance shed after turning the generators back on on 329. Gennaro and Grant head to the maintenance building's exit on 333, and Gennaro has been pinned down hiding in the truck because two dozen Procom Signathus we're looking to do some scavenging. Gennaro believes that the raptor that attacked him was injured, likely shot by Muldoon, but doesn't know its whereabouts. Velociraptors. Lex describes the raptor's hiss as a very large snake, and recall the raptors have forked tongues on 329. The kitchen raptor is six feet tall, powerfully built, with strong legs and tail on 329. The muscular upper torso has two forearms held tightly alongside the body, the claws dangling. Uh, it has an iridescent speckled pattern on its back, perhaps as seen through the night vision goggles. It moves its head with alert bird-like jerks and bobs its head up and down as it walks, with its long straight tail dipping, heightening the impression of a bird, a gigantic, silent bird of prey. 
This one is more cautious in the dark, though they are supposedly nocturnal, hence why nobody had noticed them all this time on the island, right? Um, it has the musty odor of a big reptile, and it yawns, exposing a long snout full of razor-sharp teeth on 331. Its big eyes swivel in their bony sockets. The raptor finds the frozen steak and eats it, but upon the second steak, it doesn't. Has it sensed a trap? Does it just not like steak? It has a fine pattern of striations within the spotted pattern and folds in the skin in the neck below the jaw on 332. And they kill Wu really fast and climb a tree chasing Sattler easily enough on 336. And we have Procom Signathuses. They appear in a flock of two dozen in the maintenance shed on 333 and were scavenging, squatting like buzzards trying to get a Gennaro. And Grant says they attack things that are dead or almost dead, basically unmoving, but nothing that's moving or looks strong. And a couple localities, the maintenance building, also called the Shed, it's where the generator and, quote, equipment is located on 321. It's rectangular and on a path north of the visitor center. The path is among palm trees on 325. There's a concrete loading dock with a vertical rolling door of corrugated steel and an ordinary door propped open with a man's shoe. This is the, quote, east door, we're told on page 326. There are pipes and tubing and a big recessed well in the center of the building goes two stories underground. Uh, the metal walkway with railings is on the left. The floor is metal grating, and about 20 to 30 feet, there's a walkway going right, leading to a ladder. Recall earlier, there was a narrow staircase on page 309. Uh, Arnold thought that was going to keep the raptor at bay, but of course, he died believing that. Now, recall, it's very dark, and Grant bumps his head on the ceiling, or a pipe, or something. Is the ceiling very low? Like, was what's Grant, let's say, six feet tall? Is the ceiling so low that a man bumps his head on, on it walking around, or is it... Is he up against the wall, perhaps trailing his hand along a pipe in the darkness, and somewhere along the wall there's a pipe or first aid kit or some junk sticking out of, that he walks into? Uh, that'd be expected to be about eye level. It's not spelled out what he, what he hits himself on, but maybe we'll go with something like that. There's an aluminum box with air vents in the sides reading Honda, which is the generator. It has a panel with two buttons, yellow and red. Now, on the sub-level, two stories down, there is a truck that Gennaro is hiding in on 329. How a truck gets down into the sub-level, I don't know, but that's where Gennaro is hiding. The cafeteria. The cafeteria is connected to the main lobby, it seems, on page 322. Doors open into the room where there are square dining room tables and chairs and swinging stainless steel doors to the kitchen with round windows. A rack of gum and candy stands by the cash register by the doorway. It's very dark in here. There must be no windows and Tim requires the night vision goggles to see. The kitchen. Behind the cafeteria is the kitchen. Here we go. It's at the back of the dining room on 328, with a big stainless steel table in the center of the room. A big stove with lots of burners to the left, and beyond that, big walk-in refrigerators. There's so much humidity in the air that smoke comes out of the fridge while he's looking for ice cream. The walk-in freezer is considered, quote, huge compared to the refrigerators, and I like that through Tim's perspective, probably never having seen a walk-in freezer at only 11 years of age, that he would, you know, be thoroughly impressed with these walk-in freezers. They're cool. Uh, that's a neat perspective from Crichton. Allusions and references. Uh, I think there's Linnaeus's uh, epigraph at the beginning of the book is being alluded to here. Somehow, it was worse to be confronted by an animal like this in the kitchen instead of the open forest, the size, the quick movements, the pungent odor, the hissing breath on 331, describes a velociraptor, and it reminds me of the epigraphs from the beginning of the book, specifically by Linnaeus. Quote, reptiles are abhorrent because of their cold body, pale color, cartilaginous skeleton, filthy skin, fierce aspect, calculating eye, offensive smell, harsh voice, squalid habitation, and terrible venom. Wherefore, the creator has not exerted his power to make many of them. 
These are both lists of things that, colloquially speaking, reptiles represent that make people uncomfortable. The ellipsis at the end of the quote on page 331 suggests to me that there was more to the list, and comparatively, the epigraph offers a longer list of the qualities we don't like about reptiles. It's not an especially specific allusion, no, but it does remind me of it. And not literally, but metaphorically, the epigraph presented reptiles as repulsive, disgusting, alien animals with all the worst qualities no proper human would aspire to. And I believe that's what dread Timmy is feeling at this moment, especially as the raptor is in the kitchen. It's specifically made to be an alien from out of its own time, out of its own world, and even out of the forest, where it has its own customs and behaviors, and it's entered into the kitchen, these two worlds colliding, and it's abhorrent. Recall the cafeteria tables were ordered, the surfaces are stainless steel, again, images of society, and the, the raptor is trespassing, bringing its wild and alien behavior into conflict with humanity. Maybe I read too much into that. Lord of the Rings. Tim feared the searching eyes almost as much as the sharp teeth on 331. Anytime there's a scary searching eye, one has to consider whether this is a reference to the eye of Sauron. It must be considered, although upon consideration, there isn't much else in the text to suggest any connectivity. The raptor isn't looking for power, and Tim isn't on any particular mission. None of the rest of the language strongly suggests any intentional allusion either, so I'm just going to say that it's been judged and it's been found unworthy. <laughs> Stylistic techniques. Italics. We got a couple here. Quote, they say inflammable on page 326, says Grant. The italics suggesting that the difference between flammable and inflammable might be important to Wu, or that perhaps he's at the wrong containers, or the... Em so this emphasis shows that Grant is being specific, and he's listening, listening carefully. Over here on page 329, where here is italicized, yells Gennaro from a truck. The emphasis suggests this here was yelled or especially emphasized to be both heard over the sound of the generator, but also to serve as a beacon for Grant to locate where he is. Stay here, whispers Tim fiercely, all in italics, with an exclamation mark. The italics indicating whispering, strong emotion, and exclamation denoting urgency. The mechanics are used well to impress the gravity of their situation, which is refreshing because in my line of work, usually I see this much italics and exclamation marks for a freaking church bake sale. It's a bake sale. You don't need an exclamation mark after everything, and especially three exclamation marks after you say, and more. Stinking bake sales. Italics. Don't move. On 331, Tim's inner monologue insisting that for survival he must embody this one command. A good use of italics. Quote, he's found the stake, all in italics, is Tim's inner monologue, relieved that the velociraptor finds the stake instead of Lex. And then there's trapping the raptor, and as the excitement escalates, the italics start to flow freely. The velociraptor slammed against the door and it opened. Got it? Italics. It opened. And then it stops being. But the animals hadn't expected that, and it already turned back for another try on 333. And then again, from, from the top, put it in from the top! From the top in italics. Insists Tim as they're panicked. As they're panicking. Locked in italics. The italics emphasize the most important moment of their lives up to this point. The door is locked. So good italics. Uh, we have one colon. Quote, and he only tried to correct gross behavior. Colon. Uncontrolled budding of the electrical fences, rubbing the skin raw on tree trunks, on page 334. Uh, here the colon provides a list of examples, and colons are great for presenting lists, even if they're just short ones like this. Semicolon. The velociraptor was alert, semicolon. As it came forward, it looked from side to side, moving its head with abrupt bird-like jerks on 329. And here the semicolon says it's alert, and then shows how it behaves when alert. So that's okay. The Velociraptor was man-sized, and it was clearly quick and intelligent. Semicolon. Tim feared the searching eyes almost as much as the sharp teeth on 331. The semicolon describes the animal, and post-semicolon we get Tim's reaction to more of its features. Uh, quote, a breeding animal was demonstrably effective 
in a fundamental way, semicolon, and implied that Wu had put all of the pieces together correctly on 334. Uh, and this is two connected clauses stating a truth and its implications on one sentence. Ellipses. The ellipsis is used a few different ways and a couple different times in, in this chapter. In the first, it's to indicate a pause while we wait for something to happen. Okay, I'm following it. Ellipsis. Ow! On 327. This has an ellipsis as we're pausing, waiting for Grant to follow the pipe to his next port of call, but also then italics in ow and an exclamation double emphasizing this sudden surprise. It's a bit of a shock, and all these writing mechanics are put together at once to create an almost jump scare like you might see in a horror movie. So that's, that's kind of neat. Quote, slowly Tim lowered his body, sinking beneath the table. Ellipsis. The velociraptor jerked its head around, looking directly at Tim. 331. The ellipsis lets the slowness of Tim's movement hold for a bit. And it's a good use of ellipsis there, too. Some ellipses are, are because there's a pause in the sentence, and we're just waiting for the next word, not an action. Yeah, fine. Just ellipsis. Hurt my head. Stupid. Page 327. Here, Grant's assessing his injury, and the ellipsis provides the pause for him to take stock of his bump. Some ellipses are used as open-ended, passive-aggressive requests for somebody to provide an answer or solution. Timmy, ellipsis, on 329, asks Lex, and the ellipsis is almost implying that it's in a whisper, but, but the pause encouraged by an ellipsis also allows time for a response from Tim. She's asking for his attention. Timmy, ellipsis, something's here, she adds. The italics in something's here implies the whispering. Some ellipses are used to omit the need to say more. Quote, he quietly paced placed the first of the stakes on the floor, then moved back a few steps and put down the second, ellipsis, on page 330. We get the pattern. Thanks to Crichton for not spelling out the delivery of every single stake. The ellipsis lets the rest of the chore be understood and unspoken. Quote, the size, the quick movements, the pungent odor, the hissing breath, ellipsis, on page 331. The ellipsis suggests Tim could go on and on about the awful things he doesn't like about the being near this velociraptor. Tim thought, Lex, please don't move, please don't move, whatever you do, please don't ellipsis on 332. And you can imagine his mind continu continuing to race, even th though the narration has changed focus for a second. Quote, he won't go in there. It's too cold. He won't go in. He won't go in. He won't go in. Ellipsis on 332. And again, this is Tim's mind racing. And you can imagine it going on and on like this in his panic. M dashes. The M dash is used a few different times to serve as an interruption. I know these animals, M-Dash, on 324, says Muldoon, but Sattler interrupts. She's no longer deferring to him as an expert because, quote, he's drunk. <laughs> Here, the M-Dash is emphasizing what we're beginning to realize in this chapter. Muldoon is unfit to be in charge of their safety, and perhaps he always was. In any case, Sattler's done with him. Later, as Sattler's exploring the mist, baiting the raptors, we get a lingering paragraph observing all that, quote, there wasn't much distance back to the fence. Not really M-Dash on page 324, when she's interrupted by being attacked by the raptors. Intelligent animals also formed plans and, M-dash, page 335, Wu is putting the pieces together, that perhaps the, the raptors are laying a, a, a trap for Sattler, but he gets interrupted <laughs> uh, by Harding, I think. In other instances, it's, uh, it's a radio cutting in and out through static, which causes an interruption, which is, you know, uh, depicted by the M-dash. There's an M-dash, I, I don't know, you don't want me to sound like a radio again, but that's what they do there. Sometimes the M-dash is used in place of parentheses. Quote, and she turned in time to see the first one, then two, M-dash, then three, M-dash. Animals hit the fence and snarl on 325. Here the M-dash suggests that the animals are hitting the fence so quickly that it's like they're interrupting the, 
the crashing of the one previous. And this reads almost like a simultaneous attack. And this is really similar to what they had at the beginning of the book when we, they, they first attacked the fence, almost simultaneously. Sometimes the M-dash serves as an informal comma. Quote, in this next refrigerator, he found all kinds of stuff. Cartons of milk, piles of vegetables, and a stack of T-bone steaks, fish, M-dash. But no ice cream. On 328 and 329, somehow Crichton missed the opportunity to use a colon before entering this list of items, but he does add an M-dash, which is used to informally replace, like, you know, maybe a comma. Some piece of punctuation is being replaced as Tim finds no ice cream. This sentence is missing some of Crichton's regular clever punctuation. It's stepped down, M-dash, moving directly toward Lex. Page 331. The M-dash here suggests that Tim's watching it move, and the shock that it's heading toward Lex interrupts him. He's no longer watching. He's being alarmed. <laughs> Exclamation. Come and get dinner! Exclamation. Dinner is served! On 323, yells Muldoon, banging a pipe. He's making a point, and the exclamation marks also make a point. <laughs> Christ! That was close! Exclamation. That, these bastards can jump! Exclamation. On 325, exclaims Muldoon, obviously shocked and worried that the raptors are potentially breaching their security. Let's keep them interested! Exclamation. He exclaims to recruit Sattler to this task of distracting them long enough that Grant can escape to the maintenance shed. Good work, Alan! Exclamation. Good work! Exclamation. Exclaims Woo! After Grant gets the generators running. It's step forward, moving directly towards Lex! Exclamation. The exclamation shows alarm and fear! Has it found her? Does it sense her? Is there hope? Or is she doomed? It must smell her somehow. Exclamation. It's slammed on the tip of the tail! Exclamation. The door wouldn't shut. Tim took a step back. The tail was gone. He slammed the door shut and hear it click! Exclamation! Closed! Exclamation! <laughs> and then Lex! Exclamation! Lex! Exclamation! He screams and the screams and screams Lex some more. The tension has released into action. It's fight or flight time as Tim enacts his plan and is now loud and exclamatory. But Lex is working in the dark to lock the door. Impatience and urgency raise the volume and the tension again through this whole bit. And the exclamation marks are in there so you can see it. I can't see anything! Exclamation! It's right there! I can't see it! Feel for it! All exclaimed. And then uh, finally, there's just one. Sattler yells Harding, trying to rescue her from the raptors. We have some capitalization. This is an interesting one I looked into. Uh, quote, and French fries, exclamation mark, says Lex at some point, And the F in French isn't capitalized. Usually French is a proper noun, which takes a capital letter upon its use in common English. Words derived from proper nouns usually keep the noun's capitalization. Thus, we refer to the Canadianized textbook, Dickensian plots, and European fashions with capital letters. But give me a rule without exceptions, right? The Canadian Oxford Dictionary capitalizes the F in French door, but the caps and spelling guide is lowercase f, whereas both the Canadian Oxford Dictionary caps and spelling and the Chicago style guide all give French fries a lowercase f. So maybe that was appropriate. And there are other examples of them switching, perhaps arbitrarily, between capitals and lowercase letters for words like Roman numerals, but is capitalized, but Roman type is not. Dutch ovens are capitalized. Swiss cheese is not. All this means in terms of following style guides is not that something is right or wrong. It doesn't, don't let some, you know, total jerk tell you something is wrong because the capitalization or punctuation doesn't meet their style. It's only that it's not their style. That's the only difference. Now, this has nothing to say of grammar and syntax, only punctuation, capitalization, and some spelling. So small f in French fries looks like it's going to be okay this time. I'm not sure, but I've always had this feeling like editors at big publishing houses opt for the Chicago style when they're publishing a novel. I don't know what they're, what, what style they use, but it's always felt to me like it's Chicago-y. It's certainly not a Canadian press style, that's for sure. Tension. One of the elements Crichton employs to raise the suspense and extend the tension here is the fog. 
that it's so thick that something can almost literally appear out of nowhere. A scene where the raptor appears as a ghostly pale animal out of the fog is really cool on 322. And then it disappears back into the fog. Later, as settlers exploring the mist, baiting the raptors, we get a lingering paragraph paragraph observing all that she observes. The paragraph continues sensing all the aches and worries that Sadler feels, and then it spends time on her thoughts, pondering the questions she's wondering about. When the raptors suddenly attack, uh, excellent tension, and then shock and surprise. On 324, later in the kitchen, the realization that Tim and Lex are trapped in the kitchen with a velociraptor is spelled out very gradually, like over 200 words or something. Crichton employs ellipses and italics and whispering and dialogue to sustain to sustain the suspense and dread, wondering what's being left unsaid on 329. The fear of the unknown and then leaving in a mini cliffhanger here with, quote, among them silent as a ghost except for the hissing of its breath was a velociraptor on page 329. Even the idea that it's among the cafeteria tabletops moving like a ghost, hissing, all of it drums up this impending feeling of dread, and it's really great. Two more takeaways from this particular moment are that sound rose and fell softly. It was hardly audible. It might even be the wind, but he somehow knew it wasn't. And he saw the orderly green rectangular pattern of the tabletops. And moving smoothly among them, silent as a ghost except for the hissing of its breath, was a velociraptor. That is, moving among the orderly tabletops is even more eerie. This is all really well done. In the kitchen, the tension is ratcheted up to the limit. There are myriad examples of the tension, the worry, the impending evisceration of the children at a single wrong move, the burning muscles, the thumping hearts, but at no point is it higher than as when Tim is being beginning, beginning to panic. Why hadn't the animal eaten the second steak? A dozen ideas flashed through his mind. It didn't like the taste of beef. It didn't like the coldness. It didn't like the fact that it wasn't alive. It smelled like a trap. It smelled Lex. It smelled Tim. It saw Tim. Edge of your seat. And then the raptor, quote, moved very quickly now on 322. And Tim holds his breath. Now it's just a few feet away, and Tim can see the twitches in its skin. It's so close. Could see the crusted blood on its claws. It looks right at Tim. He's rigid, tense, unmoving, watching the reptile eye move. He's got me, Tim thinks. And then back to sniffing steaks. And it goes on. As Lex arrives, her, quote, little hands feel for the lock. She works in panicked gasps, and Tim can sense her terror. And as the raptor slams on the freezer door, it opens. God, it opened just to suggest that, yo, it can get out. We gotta lock this door. A masterclass in tension and release. Tension and release. Crichton is playing with us during this whole kitchen scene. It makes it last for pages. Plenty of tension, too, as Sattler escapes the raptors onto the roof, only to find herself locked out and then desperate to find an escape, but finding none to instead make the life-risking jump to the pool spanning more than 10 feet of concrete decking on 337. And then it comes to getting the computer system restarted. Nothing is easy in this book. First, there's no one to guide Tim through the startup process. Then he can't figure out how to navigate the system. Then he squabbles with Lex and they can't find where they want to go. And then they start getting a little images of events around the island, including A, the ship filled with raptors about to reach the mainland, and two, raptors about to break through the bars and kill a room full of people on 344. And then Lex yells with exclamation, that they have to get the power on now. Like, there's a lot at stake here, and Crichton is really puts it together amazingly. Like, this is why he's so famous <laughs> for moments like this. Literary techniques. We have some common expressions. Quote, he was taunting the animals now snarling back, and it drove them wild. Well, Muldoon taunting them is driving them wild? They're already feral animals. They've already gone wild, and, and that's why they were in containment. Perhaps Crichton could have been a bit more selective and said it was driving them rabid or driving them mad or furious. I guess the novel has already said that reptiles can't carry rabies, way back in episode 4, Punta Arenas, but uh, by Dr. M Marty Gutierrez. That's maybe a bad choice of words, but, you know, he could have thought of something better than that. Metaphors. Quote, she looked toward the visitor building cloaked in the fog. 
322. And this is a good metaphor. We can imagine the fog and mist wrapping entirely over something, in this case, the building. Quote, she moved through a world of shades of gray. On 324, says Crichton, as Sattler moves through the mist, obviously enter everything has become some drab tint of gray through the mist, which obscures what can be seen, including, in this case, color. Then Tim hurried back out of the freezer, seeing the edge of the door wreathed in glowing green smoke on 329. So through the night vision goggles, Tim is exiting the walk-in freezer, which must be like the size of a foyer, or foyer to some of you. So imagine he's exiting through the door, and through the threshold there is smoke encircling the doorway. And this is the image we're to receive by the idea that the door is wreathed in glowing green smoke. I guess it'd be cool to imagine that. Quote, the dinosaur silently yawn, throwing back its long snout, exposing rows of razor-sharp teeth on page 331. I don't like the expression razor-sharp. What, are the teeth going to shave you? <laughs> teeth don't really cut you either, like a razor or a knife. I think we, we literally must find a new term that depicts the horror of being bitten better than by the keenness and sharpness of an animal's teeth. Would, would being bitten by an animal with regular knife-like teeth be less scary? Does the acuity of a cut that can be mastered by the sharpness of the teeth make them more interesting? Perhaps jaws like a bear trap, or teeth like a garden tool, I don't know, but I, I, I don't have a lot of lived experiences to compare having sharp teeth bite away at my flesh, but I don't like razor sharp. It just, the blade of a razor doesn't conjure the imagery of vicious biting to me. What about like barbed wire, or a bush of thorns, or spines of a chainsaw, or 40 barbed fish hooks, or something we could really be, you know, afraid to get under our skin? That could be neat. Uh, here is where those, quote, acclaimed authors earn their cred, when they dig deep into their imagination and vocabulary and present such a suitable and relatable expression of imagery that makes the reader feel a visceral and authentic reaction. But you tell me. Maybe I'm way off on this. Rows of razor-sharp teeth is just a tired cliché today, and it doesn't really mean anything in terms of an expression or do much for the sake of imagery to me. Or Indy. Quote, those are the behaviors that sent him back to the drawing board. On page 334 is another cliché. Here, the idea that scientists used to do their formulaic calculations and planning on a drawing board and then execute their plan, and if it didn't work, they'd retry, return to the drawing board where their calculations and plans were drafted and revised them. It's a signal that says there's a conceptual problem rather than an execution problem. Extended conceits. Muldoon employs sort of an ongoing joke that they're serving themselves up for dinner to the Velociraptors on 322. He says, come and get it. Here's our first customer. Dinner is served. Sattler doesn't like it. And then uh, and then later, the conceit extends a little bit that one raptor literally enters a cafeteria <laughs> and then goes into the kitchen uh, looking for Tim and Lex. The soup's on, I guess. Similes. Continuing in these descriptions rather than similes, we'll note that Sattler observes the mist drifts like, quote, light rain past the foliage. And this is, again, just description. It's not really imagery, but it says like, and so I, it catches my attention. Uh, quote, and she darted like a, f a broken field runner, and the animal crashed down in the dirt on 325. I'm not especially familiar with this, this expression, but I'm also not a football player or a fan. A broken field runner is someone who makes, a, makes quick changes in direction to avoid widely scattered tacklers. I guess this is, um, this is when the play has fallen from its structure and you're just giving her going downfield. Quote, you heard a low hissing sound, like a very large snake, which is a good simile. We can imagine what a snake's hiss sounds like, and I suppose also transpose that sound to a lower octave to give an impression of the raptor's sound. Quote, bird like jerks, and like a bird's. On 329, the raptor moves like a bird, okay? We have this issue with Crichton's depiction of the tyrannosaur earlier, where it ducked its head to catch fish like a bird. On 144, was it a crane, a heron, a penguin? What kind of bird? Well... What kind of bird is the Velociraptor like? Is it like a chicken? An emu? 
a rockin' robin? My guess is it's like a common barnyard bird, like a duck, and it, it doesn't want to neuter the tension by evoking the imagery of a fairly pedestrian non-threat, like something you would find in a barnyard. Quote, just squatting there, waiting like buzzards on 333, says Gennaro the copies, who are looking to eat him. Well, we can imagine the picture of buzzards waiting around for an animal to be available to eat. Quote, it was a matter of tinkering the way modern workmen might repair an antique grandfather clock. So, like the workman who makes an adjustment and then sees if the clock runs any better, Wu would make an adjustment in the dinosaur's DNA and then see if the animals behaved any better on 334. Here the, the simile is explained right out for us uh, by Crichton, so that's pretty good. Dramatic irony in the maintenance shed. There is an incredible worry that the entire time Grant is in the maintenance shed because we can recall a Velociraptor has already attacked John Arnold and Donald Gennaro down here in the dark. As far as we know, the Velocir Velociraptor killed them both. And we have to believe this because otherwise those dudes would have turned the power back on, right? That's the whole reason they're down there. And so Grant is operating. He's tense. He's irritable. The directions he's receiving from Wu are frustrating. Plus, He's in a freaking rush, too. They gotta get the raptors off the roof and off the damn boat, too. There's no time for delays anymore. But isn't the raptor still down there? That's where the dramatic irony comes up, building dread and worry for us, because we know that it's down there, probably, and Grant doesn't. When I'm complaining about the contrivances in some areas of the book, it's because Crichton can do it so well at times in other parts of the book. And when he doesn't, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Dialogue. As Wu and Grant speak over the radio, Crichton does an excellent job of portraying the uncertainty in Wu and specificity in Grant, and the give and take between the two people trying to communicate clearly to achieve an important task. But the back and forth and the clarifications and the little details make it all the more tense, but all the more authentic, too, on 326 and 327. It's nice to see this done well after all of Lex's whining, <laughs> where we didn't like that dialogue. But there's one sort of ambiguous moment in here. Grant bangs his head on a pipe, which sort of reads as a jump scare, and we're shocked and surprised and worried that he's been attacked, but he's just bumped his head on 327. What happened? Nothing. I hit my head. There was a pause. Are you all right? Yeah, fine. Just hit my head. Stupid. Like, is Grant saying that hitting his head was stupid? Like it's an inconsequential bump and nothing to worry about? The whole inconvenience is just stupid? Or is he calling Wu stupid for worrying? Like, give me the rest of the instructions, stupid. I don't know. I'm going to guess it's the first one. I feel like Grant... If Grant were name-calling, there'd be an exclamation mark in there, but just the singular word stupid in a sentence all by itself without any textual clues for information is a bit awkward. I probably would have admitted it. But the dialogue continues throughout just being amazing. The confusion, the minor inconsistencies, and Wu's descriptions and directions, it all feels really natural, and how nothing is quite as Wu describes it continues to add tension, as if Grant is working without complete certainty and the steps aren't generating the results he's hoping for. How Wu is having to help him problem solve but is blind to what Grant can see is also interesting here. It, it all works really well. The banter returns when Tim has to figure out the computer screen and Lex doesn't think he knows what he's doing. But the, but the, the banter between Lex and Tim returns towards the end of this chapter uh, as they're, they're, they're fighting over what they see on the computer screen. Lex thinks that Tim doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, like 341, and earlier they were fighting over the radio too. So there's some dialogue there that eh, maybe we won't get into too closely. All right, discussions. We have show, don't tell. Quote, Wu gripped the radio when he, when he hears Grant's transmission on 326. Wu runs his fingers through his damp hair. Muldoon frowns tensely as Crichton adds more details to show how the characters are feeling rather than just saying they were stressed. If Arnold were still alive, surely he'd be lighting a cigarette too, for example. 
As well, there's a mix of, quote, show don't tell, but also tell, <laughs> as Grant's attitude starts to shift. He was a super cool dude in the park. He dragged those kids to safety literally all up and down the Tyrannosaur paddock, sauropod paddock, down the river and up over the waterfalls, but he's getting miserly now that the kids are believed to be safe. He's appearing irritated. He's saying sort of rude things like stupid, and when they're... When they restore power, he sounds flat and dull. And then he becomes unresponsive when it's indicated he'll have to return to the control room to restore the systems manually. Perhaps this is Grant realizing he'll have to operate a computer, which is his character's greatest weakness. Or perhaps he's just getting pissed off that he's a guest here. Now he's got to fix all these high-tech idiots' problems for them. And again, recall in episode 11, Plans, we were talking about Grant being blue-collar and how all these white-collar scientists in their ivory towers have screwed everything up and he's needed to clean up their mess and he doesn't like it. Perhaps this is Crichton laying the groundwork for when Grant pins Gennaro up against the wall. That strange moment that seems like such a breach of character for him. Perhaps Crichton gradually and skillfully building him up to this tipping point. All these park officials had responsibilities, and they shirked their responsibilities. Now he's got to be the one to go out and clean it up. And when Gennaro offers that final moment to shirk, Grant can't contain himself any longer. Again, we'll get there when we that, that, that scene's coming up soon. Something went wrong. Crichton's mind quits working for a little bit when he's writing the Tim and Lex in the kitchen scene. Quote, Tim started opening their refrigerators, looking for ice cream. Smoke came out in the humid air as he opened each one on 328. I'll forgive that Tim looked in a fridge for ice cream instead of a freezer. I'll concede that these stainless steel units may all look the same and you can't really tell a freezer from a fridge. That's entirely acceptable. However, quote, smoke came out in the humid air is flatly absurd. This isn't imagery. Crichton just got this wrong. Totally. I guess he was envisioning the dry ice effect that movies employ to make things like look more eerie, but that's not what happens when you open a freezer on a hot day, ever. And hypothetically, if cold air meeting humid air somehow resulted in a climatological event in the kitchen where air pressure and low fronts started flowing around, it wouldn't be smoke. Smoke is from burning, not moisture. So this is just bad writing. And Crichton does this a few times in this novel. Injured workers are called sick workers. Venomous animals are called poisonous animals. And now condensation is being called smoke. Perhaps there's an argument to be made that these are errors to be credited to the point-of-view character, and that they might make these errors. In, in many cases, it's Ed Regis who's incorrect about everything in this, or in this case, it's Tim who's just a kid. But, like, they're categorically incorrect statements. But let's be clear, there are lots of very cold walk-in freezers. They open into lots of very hot and humid kitchens in lots of restaurants all over the world. And I guarantee you that a smoky layer of atmospheric pressure doesn't condense and come spilling out every time they open the door. The floors would be slippery and every chef would have broken arms all of the time. So, like, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. There's one similarity with the movie that would be interesting to bring up. I think the quote in... The book here is after you go 20 or 30 feet, you will see another walkway going right, says Wu to Grant over the radio as they're trying to return the uh, turn the generators back on. In the film, it says after about 20 or 30 feet, you'll come to a T-junction. Take a left. <laughs> so they kind of switch it all around. And Hammond says that to Sattler as she's going through the maintenance building. Hubris. All right, let's get back to it. We haven't touched on this since John Arnold, but that was in episode 45, The Park. But let's get into it some more. Wu's unconcern with the dinosaur's behavior, his belief that he can adjust or fix their behavior through tinkering or moving on to version 4.4 are his great pride. So begins Wu's tragic tale. His overwhelming self-confidence leads him to disregard warnings or violate a divine warning or an important moral law. Again, this is delivered by Malcolm as it was for Arnold. Quote, you cannot make an animal and not expect it to act alive, to be unpredictable, to escape, on 284, says Malcolm. 
No, not to woo, but in terms of reading this story as a unified document, this is still the author's message. However, let's note, Malcolm did give Hammond and his team his report well before they broke ground on the island. So for the purpose of ignoring a divine warning, they've disregarded Malcolm's report. And again, in this moment, either Malcolm represents, according to Aristotelian definition, either the voice of moral law or a divine voice. And the god imagery has always been associated with Hammond in this novel, but I'm starting to be swayed that we might have a dueling gods on Isla Nublar, Malcolm versus Hammond. There's more to unpack there, and don't let me forget it. But what was lacking in Arnold's punishment by Velociraptor that we gain in Wu's punishment by Velociraptor is a sense of regret, realizing that their pride had clouded their judgment and that they've done irreversible damage. Wu's beginning to see that, quote, behavior was something that they should have been much more concerned about, that the purely empirical pursuit of his work was ignorantly overlooking an incredibly important of part of dealing with living things, which is how living things live, not just the mechanics of their organs operating properly, but how they behave while interacting with their environment. To overlook their behavior is egregious. And Wu begins to sense that the Velociraptor's behavior warranted much more of his consideration, but too late. He is rushing to save Sattler when Hubis drops from the roof in a shadow, pulling him bodily out the door. He's splayed down on his back, his body torn open by the raptor's claw, the animal already jerking away at, its, at his intestines while he's still alive. He's, quote, feebly reaching up with his hands to push the big head away. He was being eaten while he was still alive. Wu finds himself defenseless, realizing far too late that he'd been outsmarted by the animals he sought to control. Does Wu's death evoke our pity? Has he come to realize the error of his ways? These tragic elements are more present here with Wu than they were for Arnold. They're missing, perhaps, that one line of dialogue from the character acknowledging their fate at their own hands. But, hey, this isn't Shakespeare. So to recap, Nedry died as the consequences of his own hand, and believed too greatly in his masterful plan, which led to his demise. He was more about vengeance or justice, though he did believe he was so intelligent he could progress with impudence. Arnold's hubris was so great, he died without tragic realization that he was wrong all along. But he was probably the most clearly articulated sense of pride in all of this novel, and Wu has become the most tragic death so far, though perhaps the hubris wasn't as high as Arnold's. He is the first in the park to begin to accept that his pri great pride was actually a critical flaw, though it's not especially well articulated. And I think that covers our elements of hubris so far. <sighs> all right, signing off today. Thank you so much to Dr. Ali Nabavizadeh. Thank you for coming on the show. I had a wonderful time. Uh, what a good time talking about triceratops and things like that. Uh, and I want to sign off today, you know, thanks to all my guests, but thanks to all my listeners. Thank you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts, to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by contacting me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, you can drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, the Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Cave. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes. Or by visiting this schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Until next time.